Hello, I am Cody Allingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. This show is brought to you by Swarbricks, the first law firm in New Zealand to accept Bitcoin for legal services. The team at Swarbricks are Bitcoiners and they are knowledgeable about the legal aspects of Bitcoin in New Zealand in areas like estate planning, property and trusts. Swarbricks offers a 20% discount for services paid in Bitcoin. Find out more at swarbricks.co.nz bitcoin. Now in today's episode, I talk with Blair Walter. Blair is the renewable energy leader at Oricon, a global design, engineering and advisory firm. He is also the chair of the New Zealand Wind Energy Association. Blair shares his experience developing and financing renewable energy projects globally and the opportunities that he sees for Bitcoin mining to accompany the build out of new energy assets and infrastructure. This was a fascinating conversation and I learned a lot from Blair. I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, please send an email to hello at the transformation of value.com and I will get back to you. Otherwise, on to the show. You know, it's a nice follow on from Mike and Brad's show, you know, and, and kind of building on that story, which is, you know, for me, it's there's not much difference between personal and professional. You know, I kind of been doing this for so long that, um, yeah, the two are the two are connected for sure. But I was, yeah, what I'm, oh, you'd be pleased to know I bought my first Bitcoin on your advice. I got Blue Wallet, so I'm now officially a Bitcoin owner, which is great. But you know, mostly where I've reason I've been talking to you and Simon and others is professional. You know, trying to figure out how it fits with the renewable story and you know, personal interest sits beside that as well. But yeah, well, um, but. I guess before we dive into that, then uh, it would be good to just sort of recap what your, oh, your, you know, your professional background is and sort of how you got mm. to where you are today. Yeah, if that's right. Yeah, so um, been doing renewables for twenty years. Uh, I, I started as a engineering consultant in design power way back in nineteen ninety six or seven. It was the yeah. engineering arm of Electricity Corporation New Zealand. And that became a group that's now known as WSP, was PB Power. Did that for a while, went to Brisbane with them, you know, doing kind of cogeneration projects, gas projects, um, and then moved to London, just randomly moved there, got a job with another engineering firm, Mont McDonald, did five years there and got into renewables, moved up to Scotland to start their wind business that was, wind was taking off at that time, had a lot of fun, did um you know, a lot of first, like the first financing of a offshore wind farm. Um, a lot of, yeah, really cool projects. And and it was amazing. British engineers working all around the world, which I hadn't really anticipated. But um, we then um, moved back to New Zealand 2005. And it actually got shifted back because the, I worked for a company called Oricon, which was previously called Connell Wagner. That was the sister company of Mott McDonald and got shifted back to come and build the renewables business here and basically been doing the same job for 18 years which is hilarious but every year there's new challenges you know new geographies new technologies new clients so it's been no end of fun and um, the transition during that time is amazing you know I've gone from being the weirdo in the corner doing renewables when everyone was doing gas and coal to now everyone's doing renewables in my business at least and you know there's very few weirdos still doing gas and coal so that transition has been fascinating. We can talk a bit more about that, but um. yeah. Um, just one question on that. You you mentioned the financing 
side of it. So obviously you've got a technical background as yeah. well, but like, tell me more about that. Like, yeah, what sorry, is- I should have gone further back. So I did my mechanical engineering degree at Canterbury and got to the end of that and went, well, that was fun, but what do you do with that? And, um, and then there was a one-year master's that had just started, master's yeah. in engineering management, which I, I did because it was an intro to finance and contracts and all this other cool stuff. And it just yeah, really kind of balanced off the technical stuff really well. And, and that's kind of, that kind of set the direction for my whole career. All my career has been in that techno-commercial interface. So it's technical work, but usually you know everything comes down to a commercial or financial decision. So I've always worked in groups that have supported um, financial decisions. So we, we still do, in the UK I did a lot, and, and back here we do a lot of due diligence uh, for finance process. So if someone wants to build a big wind farm, solar farm, whatever, you know, they might have their equity, but they will go to the banks for a loan, which can be, you know, 70% of the capital cost. And so as an engineering firm, we write the technical due diligence report that the bank relies on to, to finance that project, to basically say, yep, that all looks good and um, it's a reasonable credit risk, so we're going to go ahead with that. So, um, yeah, I've always enjoyed that techno-commercial interface. Yeah, well, that's sort of the point where, where things get real is the, the money side of it. And I mean, what does that mean? How do you, what sort of challenges do you face with long-term investments? Because I imagine these are five, 10 year type projects. Well, they're, yeah, longer, you know, 20, even 30 year design life now. And what's interesting is that the finance is usually non-recourse, which means the banks don't have any recourse to the owner. So if the project fails, they can't go to the owner and say, hey, you borrowed that money, you pay that back. So the the only recourse the bank has is to the um, revenue or the cash from the project itself. So that's that's the definition of kind of project finance or non-recourse finance. So that, that's why we need to do a thorough due diligence to make sure that you know it will perform as expected, will generate the cash that's expected and, and be able to repay the loan. And the banks put a lot of caveats and restrictions in the loan agreement so that you know, if, for example, the project underperforms, they can, they've got certain protections that goes into what's called lockup, where the owners can't take any dividends out of the project or the cash has to go to repaying the, the debt. Um, yeah, so it's it's really, really fun. And I've, I've done financing projects all around the world, you know, little hydros in Uganda, did, um, I've done projects in Southeast Asia. One was really funny, actually, in Indonesia, we did financing of a big hydro we have an office there, and um, but they weren't experienced in due diligence. So I kind of helped with that project and guided it, if you like. And we were just getting ready to start the due diligence, you know, negotiated our contract. And the banks asked us if we could just check and confirm that a, a drawing or a piece of work, you know, was as expected coming out of this project. And I said, well, why would we do that? We haven't started the due diligence yet. And after some back and forward questioning and some language challenges, it um, it emerged that financial close had already happened on the project. And I went, well, what's the point of us doing a due diligence then? If the bank's already you know, signed the loan agreements and agreed to fund these projects, then our due diligence is redundant. But we did it anyway. And then uh, it led to me doing a workshop in Indonesia with two of the top national banks of Indonesia, government-owned, on why you should do due diligence before you commit the loan. It, it's crazy. And these, these banks had funded billions of dollars of infrastructure stuff. And, and they were winging it. Yeah, they were winging it. They yeah. hadn't done the assessment. So it was, um, 
yeah so it's very fun you get to kind of go and uh, you know explore some some new territories and new challenges but what, what's been your experience with that in new zealand then is there a uh, yeah i mean are these projects generally funded locally is it international consortiums that are investing in energy infrastructure in new zealand like what what's the the landscape for it here yeah it, it might be useful to just talk about australia quickly a lot okay. of our work's been australia and much more mature there i used to boast that you know new zealand was so much superior to australia in terms of renewables but in fact they've got on with it quicker built a lot more and it's really interesting the finance piece you know mature asset class so you've got all the pension funds coming in from overseas massive canadian pension funds providing equity big european investors and then the commercial banks and international banks you know quite mature at fun at funding these projects um and so that's a, a well-proven model. Um, you know, you, if, if you're the if you're the project developer, you call it off-balance sheet because you've tied all the finance up in a project vehicle. Whereas in New Zealand, historically, most of our renewables assets, wind and solar, uh, sorry, wind in particular, ignoring hydro, which was built, you know, earlier, kind of government-driven, um, the wind, wind projects have been largely financed on balance sheet. So Meridian... And trust power Meridian more so built a lot of the early stuff um, with quite a different model. So, if you don't have banks crawling over you and pulling your project apart, you can kind of have a bit more control of how you structure your projects. Um, and so that was you know we don't have that same project financing model here with that depth. Now, there have been quite a few recently, but it, it is fairly new. So, the Lodestone Solar portfolio is really interesting. Um, we advised on the, the debt financing of that. So Lodestone was kind of a solar startup, one of the most advanced. I've uh, got five projects, uh, negotiated a facility loan with, with Westpac to build them out, and they've now got the first two under construction. And um, uh, what else? Waipipi Wind Farm in Taranaki, developed by Tilt, now owned by Mercury, you know, had a more of a, a debt package um but all the earlier projects before those, you know, have been balance sheet funded, so corporate debt from Meridian and, and others. So so we haven't had that same volume of projects um, like Australia has. It's actually quite interesting. So I'm, I'm chair of the Wind Association and we're looking at the market going, hey, we've got heaps of projects, lots of activity, but I still haven't seen the inrush of international investors like other markets have, like Australia in particular. And in solar, we're seeing them all come here and want to develop projects. And I think my take is that it's still challenging here for wind, our, our resource consent process in particular. We don't have a, a very deep uh, offtake market yet. It's coming, but you know, if you're if you want to build a project and you're an international investor, you know, there's only one example of a long-term power purchase agreement for a wind farm, which is which is Waipipi um, that Tilt negotiated. With Genesis to buy the power from that, so so it's coming, but we're still we're still a bit immature in that regard. Um, but there is plenty of capital. There's never been a shortage of capital, but it's about having you know that wants to come here. But it's about having projects ready to build, you know, mature offtake market to sell the power and, and and finance that's easy enough to secure. Yeah, well, the um, I mean, both of those points are quite interesting. 
um, the regulatory resource consent side of it, uh, which uh, Mike and Brad talked a little bit about sort of how that works and how much groundwork is involved. And obviously, we've got environmental concerns. A lot of um, a lot of that aspect is uh, really important as well, you know, nationally for us to um, you know make sure these are going in, in places where they're not going to be causing issues for wildlife and that sort of thing. Uh, and then the offtake market. So, I mean, diving into what that means, um, is that looking at... Oh yeah, I mean, I'd love to sort of hear what what that means in a New Zealand context. Like, what what is an offtake market, and how does it apply to renewable energy? Yeah, so so most of the projects built to date, you know, have been done by Gen Taylors. So, the likes of Meridian, Mercury, Contact, um, Manawat, um, and Genesis are generators and retailers. We call them Gen Taylors, where you know they've got a large book of customers residential, industrial, and they have historically built their generation assets to match that. And, you know, sometimes they're short on generation, some long. But we haven't had a lot of independent generators that have come into the market um, and built projects and sold the power to someone. With You know, that that's kind of how um, most markets develop over time and as they get more mature. And, and we're certainly heading that way with independent solar developers and wind coming. We've got NZ Wind Farms is really our, one of our only examples of an independent um, generator that's out there without a retail business. So they, you know, needed to contract their output or take spot market risk. Um, so, I, you know, over the next few years, looking at what we need to do as a country to build all this renewables, those incumbent gen tailors are active, developing and building projects as well. But there is... Uh, a lot of new entrants coming to the market, particularly solar, and some wind, and they want to take projects forward and have options to um, to sell the power. So each of the gen tailors, you know, you can approach them and talk about buying the power from your project, and and they're all getting quite good at that. Um, and there's corporate PPAs emerging as a very important part of the market, where a large industrial might come, uh, you know, negotiate directly with a project. And that model has been really important in other markets as well. We saw that a lot in Australia where, you know, the big decarb initiatives um, drove those parts and all sorts of people like universities and, um, it, you know, it, it was mature for me, kind of the across the threshold when the mining companies got involved, you know, when the likes of BHP and Rio, these big guys are starting to sign deals with wind and solar farms, you kind of, you know, you know, you know you're over the hurdle and, you um, in New Zealand, our, our large industrials have been out looking for a while at how they procure power, um, whether they can help underwrite new renewables projects and actually advance the decarb uh, journey, if you like. So. Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned uh, NZ, NZ Wind Farm as an independent, and the offtake for them, does that still end up being brought or purchased by one of these gen tailors to then on-sell, or would it be arranging a deal directly with say an industrial park or a, a group of businesses like how does that work yeah it, the idea is you, lots of options so they can you can either go purely merchant just take whatever the spot price is doing contract part of your output sell all of it you know long term short term so each company needs a, a strategy for its its power um, NZ Wind Farms have I believe some short term offtake agreements but I'm not sure who they're with I can't remember um but they're looking to repower that project with big new turbines. Um, and so, you know, part of their 
business case, we'll look at, okay, well, how do I lock in a power price? Do I want a long-term power purchase agreement? Um, so yeah, you, it comes back to your whole strategy, risk appetite, finance structure. The In Australia, the example has been that, you know, if you want finance, the banks just want it easy. So they want, you know, fully contracted output and a wrapped uh, construction contract, one contract, simple. But um, with mature market, they're now moving, you know, more companies are, are building without a power purchase agreement uh, and with unwrapped uh, construction contracts and even starting construction with equity and financing later just to make it easier because the you end up paying a lot for the, the bank to take the risk of some of the construction issues, delays and cost overruns. So all that, you know, there's kind of maturity in the market that um, will, will happen here. Okay, interesting. So we've still got a little while, little while to go uh, to develop some more of that kind of hardwood that you might see in other places. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as of today, I think we're over a gigawatt of wind operating yeah. in a total generating system of about nine, nine gigawatts. Um, but, you know, we're heading to this future of doubling our installed capacity with new wind and solar and geothermal and anything else. So... You know, we've got to really ramp up that construction. Uh, we need a few gigawatts of wind, a few of solar. Um, final numbers are up for debate, but um, that's a big step up from what we've done. Yeah. And so we need a lot of development options coming through. We need a lot of money to do it. Contractors, supply chain. Supply chain concerns me. There's, um, you know, there's only a couple of turbine suppliers with experience in New Zealand, investors in Siemens Gamesa. They're both struggling financially. Same with GE. You know, so you've got this huge build out and the same in every other country, so much demand for wind turbines and these guys are not making money in the kind of the most um, active market we've ever had. So there's something wrong. We've driven price down too hard over the years to try and, you know, show that renewables can be cost competitive. So the you know, pricing is not sustainable. So there's got to be a bit of movement there. Interesting. Do you think there's also labour challenges in terms of actual physical installation, technicians, um, getting people to put these things in? Like, is that a challenge in New Zealand? Um, I, not yet. Uh, interesting to think about whether it could be in the future. Um, we're only building a couple of projects at the moment. You know, would it take? And we only we need to build, you know, one or two projects a year every year. So in theory, it's a sustainable you know, a workforce that can move around. But um, certainly supply chain as a topic is is going to be challenging. It's, it's probably more contractors. You know, if you are if you want to build a project, you want to have options for equipment suppliers, contractors, and it's just limited at the moment. So I look out and say, you know, if we, if we did want to build a few gigawatts of wind, we really need more participants in the market. And um, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I hear you. Um, well, look, that's um, really interesting. Thank you for that overview of, of sort of uh, your how you see the, the, the energy market, how uh, how these new assets get built, and, and some of the finance financial side of it. Um, f- switching the conversation to the Bitcoin uh, side of things, um, what what is, what is how did you find Bitcoin? What what initially piqued your interest? And what connections do you see with your professional work? Yeah, good question. So it's been really interesting. Uh, so starting just with the renewables piece, one of the key things is we need demand growth, right? To build all this new generation, the 
Minister Woods asked me a couple of years ago, what are you most concerned about? And I said, demand. You know, we've got these targets. We want to build a few more gigawatts of wind and solar. And the government can't actively, you can't guarantee that demand growth, right? So we're encouraging decarbonization, EVs, you know, electric boilers, all sorts of things that will in theory create demand for electricity. But no one can guarantee that when a developer comes and has their next wind farm ready to build, that there's a customer there ready and waiting. So it's been on my mind for quite some time that the speed of that demand growth has to dictate, you know, that's how our market works, dictate how quickly we can build the renewables to meet the, the targets. Um, so anything you can do to kind of manage your own demand, and I'll come back to that. Uh, my Bitcoin story, I actually went, at, you know, to that Singularity University presentation 2017. I think Brad mentioned it on the Mike and Brad show that you had. That was really good. I enjoyed that a lot, oh, actually. Okay. Um, so I went to that and thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. And I've kind of followed the story for a while, but not really dived in hard. Um, but had an opportunity, uh, when was that, late last year? We've got a, a wind option for a client we've been looking at, which is ne- it's a beautiful project in all regards except grid. And I'm, it's never going to make it to grid. It's too far away. So it's a remote wind farm. And so I set about trying to think, you know, what could we do with this power? And in parts of other parts of the world, we're looking at islanded hydrogen production. And some of the offshore wind farm developers are thinking about this where, you know, you, it's really expensive to bring your power to shore. So you, you don't. You just you make hydrogen offshore, put it on ships and send it overseas. And, and that's certainly a model for onshore wind as well. But you've got to, you know, you've got to build a port or some kind of loading facility. So all the options I went through, you know, have infrastructure for the export of the product. If you're not if you're not paying to connect to the grid to export electricity, you've got to pay, you know, some other infrastructure. So data centers are example, you, you know, you need um, you need a lot of redundancy in your power supply. You need good um, fiber network to export your product. And, and I was scratching my brain thinking, well, what else could we do to use this power? And I happened to watch the Mike and Brad presentation to the, I think it was the Electricity Engineers Association about Bitcoin. I thought, oh, that's funny. I should look at that. And and so I went searching for, well, what's the current status of corporate Bitcoining? Is corporate Bitcoining a thing? And um, yeah, it's just been this amazing journey of discovery of, okay, there are these big companies that are doing this, large loads, um, you know, aligned with renewables. And I, I was actually quite impressed. And, and you know, it's how I first kind of connected with you and you put me in touch with Simon Collins and Tom Algie and I've had some really great discussions with the people like that in this community who and they're so smart and this and sophisticated and I've realized that it's really an energy game it's it's just energy right um and I got quite excited about the option for um islanded wind projects in particular because there's no infrastructure to export your product and the um the waste heat recovery opportunity is quite significant as well so as a business we do a lot in, in um, process heat you know we do a huge amount of work for people like Fonterra and other processing companies about you know how they use energy how you recover heat from waste streams um, energy efficiency so it's quite interesting to think about using that heat and you touched on a wee bit with Mike and Brad but um, 
yeah, there's some really cool options, I think, for that. And so, yeah, I've been slowly putting the pieces together and thinking about, okay, how can Bitcoin enable this off-grid project? But then the more I looked at it, so many of our projects, the, the challenge is the good sites, finding a good site, so good wind, if it's wind, good wind, you know, easy access, acceptable environmental impacts, like you mentioned, but then being close to grid that can, you know, that is just happens to be correctly sized for the capacity of the project. But suddenly, if I've got Bitcoin there, then I can manage that. If, you know, maybe I've got a 100 megawatt wind farm site, but there's only a 30 megawatt, you know, connection or smaller, you know, why not use some Bitcoin? And and when the wind, out, wind farm output exceeds the grid uh, connection capacity, you know, make, make Bitcoin instead. So, you know, suddenly you start seeing opportunities everywhere and it, I've come to think of it as the holy grail in some ways because back to my point about demand, you know, if you're a renewables developer, you want certainty of demand, take it with you, develop your own demand. It's, it's just magic and it's modular, flexible, these secondary um, revenue opportunities like market support, ancillary services. It's amazing what's possible. So, um, yeah, so I've got quite excited, got a few initiatives underway at the moment to look at how we can do that with projects. But it's pretty funny, it, you, nine out of 10 people, you mentioned Bitcoin and they just laugh. And, and so I think, you know, maybe there's a rebrand required and, and I'll take them on this journey about, okay, it's um, it's not criminals in their basements. You know, it's become corporate. It's credible. It's the way of the future. My personal view is that it will become like a global reserve currency at some point, whether that's 10 years away or 50, I don't know, but I'm on board with, you know, with what it what it can do, what it should do for currency. But so, yeah, I'm pretty committed to see how I can make it work. And I think my contribution, it seems like the Bitcoin miners I talk to, you know, they want sites with good renewables and we work for the renewables developers and what they want is good counterparties, you know, that can provide that long-term power purchase agreement. And what they don't want to do is have to figure out what the Bitcoin market is doing and take risk. So you somehow need to create this separation between the customer for the power of the wind farm is maybe a mining host or or, or an integrated company that can insulate the wind farm company from Bitcoin market. You know, my renewables clients don't want to know about halving and, you know, all these things. It's just too much for them. They just want to sell their electricity to someone. And when I talk to the banks, I say, hey, would you finance a project where the Bitcoin miner is a is an offtake counterparty? They go, well, we don't care what their business is as long as they can show that they're credit worthy. You know, they're going to be around. They can pay. Yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting. So trying to look at, well, where are the where are the challenges? You know, what do I have to demonstrate for that to work? Is my current focus, and it, it's a lot of fun. It's you know, I get to have some excellent conversations. So I feel quite lucky in my role. I get to go and explore this and see how I can help to put the pieces together. Yeah, I'm wondering a couple of things you've you've prompted me to think about. Um, New Zealand really is, is a couple of cities and then a bunch of small towns and these isolated projects uh, I imagine there's sort of a, a minimum megawattage that really is the point at which stuff becomes cost effective and that might not always match what the, the nearby town or, or city is, is sort of trying to demand um, and so as you, the example you mentioned a 100 megawatt generation asset and then a 30 megawatt demand 
Um, is that quite an important consideration when you're financing? Like, is is micro power cost effective? Say small, m- smaller operations, or is there really kind of step ups of efficiency at certain sizes? Yeah, good question. So the thirty megawatts I mentioned was actually the grid capacity, which is not necessarily the local load. So, you know, the reason we have these transmission networks throughout the country is so the power can go wherever it needs to. You know, we when the when we have plenty of hydropower. In the south, we, we transport it all the way up to Auckland where the load is. So I think the way you've got to look at it with renewables is um, what solar is a bit different. I think long-term solar, the fact that you can put it on every factory, house, building, eventually, you know, right where the load is, that's kind of a different value proposition than than wind or these large-scale solar projects we're building at the moment, where you build them where the good resources are, and then you need the transmission network to transport it to where... The load is, and that changes over time. So at a given point in time, your electrons might flow north, south, or, or wherever, and you, you don't really care too much. They go into this pool um, that's enabled by the, the transmission and the distribution network. So, um, just sorry, just to clarify that, because I know um, Mike mentioned the um, uh, HV, HV, HVDC link. HVDC link. Um, say we've got you know Clyde Dam that. Within New Zealand's geographic range, basically power can go anywhere. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And so, but it is a case that maybe you've got uh, some isolated location where the actual transmission infrastructure, the the high voltage lines, are not capable of um, handling large loads that would have, say, been able to, you know, uh, say far north, for example. You know, if there's an asset there, it can only handle 30 megawatts over the lines. Is that sort of what you're? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, and that. It's a big thing in Australia as well. There's been so much build out of renewables. They've used up a lot of the easy connection sites. So a lot of projects now facing up to curtailed connections, um, you know, and, and looking at ways that you can make that work. And and every country eventually, as they do large-scale renewables rollouts, hits this grid limit. And, and there's a lot of strategic grid investment upgrades required to enable more renewables. And and it's very slow. They, you know, it takes government approvals and often changing regulations to enable it so just just so quickly on that so um i mean there is a lot of talk about the actual generation assets but bringing it back to the lines and the infrastructure and i imagine some of the um, transformers and things that are in that in that sort of supply chain like what does that mean uh are there limits is that a different skill set a different basically a different industry to build those high voltage lines across the country um can are they easily upgradable is it expensive to do that how does that all work uh all of the above okay. is challenging and it, it becomes the the rate limiting factor on renewables growth and in, in most markets that i've worked oh, in really okay. yeah yeah mm-hmm. at some point you know the grid becomes the the barrier and, you, and we're not set up for large upgrades you know it's been quite incremental historically you reinforce the grid progressively but we're talking about you know massive amounts of new generation develop quite quickly, so the the investment in the grid has to match that or enable that, and um, yeah, it's often it's often a lot slower to get a new line proposed or an upgrade proposed, reviewed, approved through the regulatory process, slower than the the developers want to move. Particularly solar, you know, solar can be um, developed, built very quickly, uh, a lot quicker than the the cycle to you know design, propose, kind of fund a new 
grid a new piece of line to to enable that connection. So, and, and what does that look like in New Zealand? I mean, uh, Transpower right is one of the the yeah, line. Tra- Transpower is the transmission network. The so entire network. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they're government owned, um, and they yeah they've been very forward looking. Um, about you know the the build out of renewables, doing a lot of scenario work and investment um, analysis, but there's still just that speed for them to get um, you know commerce commission approval for any investment case. It's just a lot slower than if if you think about renewables project development being entirely commercial. Yeah, they can move fast. They're agile. They can finance however they want. To match that speed, it was just not possible because Transpower has to work through the regulatory environment, ComCom approvals. So they've been trying to be ahead of the curve. But when the when the solar um, market f- finally got interesting here, they were just overwhelmed. We had an, a ridiculous number, something like 13 gigawatts of connection inquiries for new solar projects. And so, yeah, you can just see there's this mismatch of speed between the participants that want to connect and how fast Transpower and the lines companies can, you know, can move in a in a regulated market. So, um, and to clarify here, so Transpower is responsible for all of the high voltage lines in New Zealand. Correct. Uh, and is it a state owned enterprise? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, is that how did that? I, I'm not sure if you, you you know this, but like how how did that emerge? Was there originally uh, was it an, an, a fully government ministerial type thing, or was it a private company that that then got nationalized like how did transpower come into existence yeah the, our whole infrastructure energy system you know like every country was government owned at some point and has been um corporatized if you like so that i think that's the correct name so they you know they make businesses that are still government entities but to own and and run those assets like like businesses so uh and then some of them so initially they, they did that with the the grid um the generating assets were were split into um, new corporates, so government owned. So that yeah, I think that's the right corporatized, and then eventually privatized as well. So government said, well, actually, we don't have to own this, but you know, we want it to run like business. We want competition. So that so that whole process, I think, in New Zealand, you know, through eighties and nineties, yeah. and, and and through um, so Transpower's existed in that form for some time, it, and the distribution businesses are interesting. So. The idea is that generators feed power into the transmission network. It goes where it needs to around the country and then is fed to the local consumers, so houses, businesses, factories through distribution networks, which are the lower voltage, normally 33 kilovolts and down. Um, and they also were government-owned at one point, um, and most of them have also owned some generation. They had to kind of – each of them had to choose between being – oh, no, sorry, retail and – and distribution business, and and most of them have um, remained as distribution businesses, but they're community owned, so they're often a community trust that owns all of the networks around New Zealand. A couple of them are privatised, like Paco and Victor, I think. Um, is Unison a distributor? Unison's one. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's twenty seven, I think, is the number. Um, okay, and and so those those will be providing sort of to the door uh, distribution. Correct. Um, but. Sorry, just coming back to Transpower, because this is really interesting. So is this a model you've seen overseas? Like, for example, Australia, is it a single entity that is in control or at a state level, a national level? It is common. Australia is actually quite different in that they've actually got different transmission network owners for each state, and they have become privatized. So um, most of them are held privately, apart from some states. Um, 
Western Australia, for example, isn't, but the rest of the transmission owners in Australia have been um, yeah, sold by government to all sorts of private investment company, private investors. So it's, it seems like this is really a, a, an industry of national importance. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm sort of learning about this now, but if that is the bottleneck, you know, and you've got people, you know, chomping at the bit to, to install these new renewable assets, but it's simply the case that the high voltage network can't actually take that. Mm. And that there's a, I imagine it's a lot of work. I mean, there's probably a lot more moving parts to running high voltage lines across farmland and, and getting all of that resource kind of bureaucratic stuff sorted. Um, I mean, that must be something we really need to be on to now for the future. Yeah, and look, Transpower has been for a long time, they have been expecting this um, growth in renewables. So, yeah. you know, they are very good at what they do. Um, so, uh, yeah, whether there's an argument to privatise, I haven't really heard anyone talking about privatising our transmission. I don't know that that would achieve anything different um, some of our clients we talk to about uh, private investment in strategic grid. So in Australia, for example, the big trend is um, renewable energy zones. So there's, each state has now studied and, and announced projects. So there's so much there's so much renewables required in Australia for their transition. You know that they've they've used up a lot of their easy connection, as I said. So um, each of the transmission companies are looking at dedicated assets, hubs, if you like, to connect a lot more renewables in areas not currently served by the transmission network. And there's no reason that that can't be privately funded. Um, so they kind of put it out to the market. And the first couple are only just getting underway now, but uh, yeah, there's no reason we can't do that in New Zealand. Transpower has consulted on the concept of renewable energy zones and thinking about Northland initially because there's so much solar and wind in particular that could happen up there. Um, that you know they could build a dedicated asset, but that would re- require um, you know special uh, regulatory approval to build a strategic asset because they have to you know they have to um, charge customers and and earn a an agreed return on any investment they make. But in other countries, you know we've certainly seen um, particular classes of investors that can take long term risk, step in and build those assets and own them and operate them, and it's quite attractive and. There are some of those businesses in New Zealand could do that. NZ Superfund is a as an example where, you know, they manage the superannuation funds and you know they could take the long term view and, and build strategic grid assets. Um, the question is, would that help? Is it a is it a shortage of capital that holds it back? Is it regulatory? It's it's very complex and yeah, I'm I, not I'm not an expert in that space, but um, it certainly needs to be debated and figure out. What needs to happen to enable the renewables that enables the decarbonisation? Well, I think coming back to the the Bitcoin piece, uh, it's it's really interesting. As you say, it needs a bit of a rebrand, and I think this is something that everyone kind of realises once they actually understand what Bitcoin means. And in fact, sort of the 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 way we got to this point where it's actually very misunderstood in the public and in the media, I think, is exactly because there is no company behind it there is no ceo there's no marketing department except um you know going and reading the code and talking to people who are using it and 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 who have studied bitcoin and so in that sense it's it kind of lags behind you know the shiny marketing department of of other things but actually once you understand it you see that there's some real opportunity and this kind of ah this 
this kind of public perception of it is a real challenge because people do have a gut reaction and as you say they don't they don't understand it they they, they feel threatened by it it's, it's quite revolutionary and and yeah. in, in, the, in the way the internet was and if you were to go back in time and say well look you know 1990 we're going to put everything on the internet it's going to be digital it's going to be on computers i mean there's a lot of companies that were would have been uneasy about that proposition it just yep. took them 10 15 years to kind of eventually change their mind mm. um and so exploring that um how do we tell the good stories how do we tell this opportunity that is really sitting here for these kinds of things can, can i just go back to one other question you had before yeah, we yeah, sure. do that just to close out the the wind you asked a really good question about why we don't have small wind farms everywhere yeah. uh and, and this is a function of our Resource Management Act. It's been so difficult and costly and risky historically that my view is it's, it's pushed developers to go for larger and larger projects, you know, to make it worthwhile taking that risk. And for example, we helped Genesis to find and develop and consent the 800 megawatt Castle Hill wind farm option. And looking back, I think, why did I ever think we'd need 800 megawatt wind farms? You know, that it's just huge for the size of our network and there were a few other um, developments of that scale and I think it was because of that consenting issue and, and we've never really had an easy way for small community projects to, to get consent. It's just too expensive, too risky. Whereas other parts of the world, Europe in particular, there's been much more of a grassroots renewables movement You know, where if you take places like the Netherlands, when they divided up the reclaimed land and um, you know, they they had approvals in place that each farm was a defined block and approval for a wind turbine and the right, you know, the same location on the road. And they had this beautiful renewables options baked into the whole planning for that. And then, you know, Germany, uh, one of the original leaders in wind, a lot of projects that are just one or two turbines, community owned. And our rules around the Resource consent have just made that impossible. We don't really have any good examples of small wind turbines, um, community projects. We've got a couple of projects that Pioneer Generation and Energy3 have managed to do smaller scale, but I think it's a big gap in the market. And one of the hopes with the reforms of the RMA is that it builds in almost like an automatic approval for small projects if they meet certain hurdles. So you don't have to go through this expensive, risky consent process. So that's a real gap in the market because the the number of places that we can do nice big projects 50 100 200 megawatts is actually a bit limited um so we need we need all of our options small large medium um so i just wanted to cover that off before we move bit right into yeah. the bitcoin stuff so, sorry no I, and i do have a supplementary now um so on that uh just thinking again the geographic situation in new zealand um it, it just seems like there's some real challenges around, you know, being able to stand something up basically in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, get that online and then um, move on to the next thing. And it is, you know, the, the RMA is, is one barrier, um, maybe just even general infrastructure. And I wonder whether there's a bit of a, a chicken and egg situation where some of our regional provincial growth is really limited. You know, there's not new suburbs going up in, in these places, you know, they're sort of a the on on the uh the the shore of auckland region but um you know maybe some stuff down south as well but generally you know provincial developments um you know historically you saw places like mangakino and these sort of towns emerge out of mm. out of thin air 
we, we don't see that anymore. And so, is there a long-term kind of direction? You know, what is even the growth trajectory of New Zealand for, you know, building new industrial parks, new places that are not just Auckland or Canterbury? Like, yeah. I, I don't know if you, if you have an answer to that. but it's, I think my, my high-level take is that energy has become strategic for everybody, right? If I roll back 10 years ago, all we did was energy projects for energy companies, you know, and and most most consumers didn't think too much about energy. They, If you look at miners in Australia, I've mentioned them before, energy is just like any other utility, water, accommodation, they just – it just has to be there, has to be cheap, has to be reliable. They don't care. And so that led to diesel generators as the easiest, you know, just get it done, no problem. But now with the renewables movement, energy has become strategic for so many people. Every big company that we work for, they're, they're somewhere along their transition journey, you know, they're either starting or they're very mature. So they've had to really think about energy. And I think what that's leading to is... Um, you know, developments focused around, well, where can I get cheap, good, renewable energy? So you, I think we're going to see more, there's a bit of a trend in, in Asia and other parts of the world around precincts where, you know, industrial consumers want to head to places where you can also have co-located, you know, good wind and solar in an area so that, you know, it brings the cost down. So I think we haven't seen that much here, but I think it will happen. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just a conversation I had at lunch with someone. Um, you know, we were talking about agriculture, but more broadly, looking at infrastructure, I do get concerned sometimes, uh, you know, and uh, what, what the future in New Zealand may look like if we don't start developing uh, you know, industrial parks that are actually able to manufacture things or, you know, these kind of centres. Um, I mean, there's so much uh, that we could do there. Um, and, and obviously, we've got the land, we've got... You know these these um, you know open open spaces where we can do things, but the, the, I just don't I don't see it happening. I don't see it. You know, just from my uh, my lens on it, you know, there's not you know new you know new locations coming online where businesses can set up and get really good power rates that are competitive because mm. we still have to ship stuff to the other side of the world if we're going to export, and yep. so we need to be uber competitive locally. Um, to, to be able to um, compete and I mean we've done well with agriculture to be able to do that yeah but with other other things we I, I don't know I mean this is just more national direction but um, maybe you know local regional power would really help with that yeah and uh, you know certainly those conversations I think are happening I've got a few examples of you know when we're helping a client with a new project proposal you go and talk to the council and the mayor might say oh do you know what your timing's so good because there's these proposals for new housing or new industry coming to this area. So it'd be amazing if you could also do a wind farm in the area. So you've got to think about how it happens. You know, is it is it the, the load that goes first or the or does the renewables enable people to come to a region and build and use that power? But Chicken um, and egg, eh? <laughs> Yeah, it is a little bit. And, yeah. you know, you come back to this fundamental point of of um, who's, who's in charge, who's planning, you know, and it, it's quite funny for me. I've always been a market guy, you know, electricity is a bit weird. It's We treat it as a commodity. It's not really because you can't store it, but it's a wholesale market, right? So wholesale price dictates, price dictates um, when you should build. So when the oversupply, price is low, don't need more power. We're still in that, you know, we had a long period of not building any new wind generation um, because the price was low. We had, we had plenty after the GFC energy efficiency but now with demand growing the theory of wholesale market is that the price increases which is your signal to invest to build more 
But um, that's the market model. But, you know, more and more the things we want to achieve as a country actually suggest that central planning is required to some extent, you know. And the government wants to um, facilitate offshore wind. They think that's going to be an important long-term option. Um, it's more expensive than um, onshore wind and solar and will have its place, but it, it can't compete on a pure uh, cost basis. So, you know, if the government decides that it will enable it through some other contract mechanism like happens overseas, then, you know, that's a step away from the market. And then if the government also is saying, well, we need to protect against dry winter risk as we move to the high renewable scenarios, if we don't have enough hydro inflows, um, we can have power shortages, which is why we keep Huntley running on coal. Government, you know, looking at the NZ Battery Project, which is, you know, either a big pumped hydro at Lake Onslow or on the North Island, or batteries or, or other options, you know, everyone recognises that's important. The market isn't really solving that problem, so the government might have to solve it, right? So that's yet another step away from the market. So when this strange time of, you know, trying to figure out, is the market going to get us where we need to go over the next few decades, or do we bin it and, and just, you know, go back to central planning? And, it's, and you know, I've had to really rethink a lot of what I've always believed about wholesale markets and things like that, but it's, it's certainly good a mental challenge to work through. Well, on that note, and, and sort of tying this back to the Bitcoin thing, I think, I mean, central planning, certainly, the, the you know, the Austrian economics of it, you know, you, you look at it and it's just, you know, some of the historical think big projects, you know, they were disasters financially. I mean, we're still using a lot of them, but they were... Uh, arguably misallocation of, of capital um, because the government doesn't know everything right but the, the kind of the flip side of that is there is there an opportunity for central direction and a vision and the market implementation of that is left up to the to the actors and the corporations in, in that in that space but actually a national conversation around well what are we trying to do here because we're just yep. sort of stumbling around sometimes um, and it's, it's in a way similar to the Bitcoin story like there's a lot of misconceptions and actually rejigging the national conversation to say, look, New Zealand could become a global leader in the future of money. Um, right now, there's a real opportunity globally um, to be, you know, taking advantage of our natural resources, mm. This taking advantage of this emerging technology of Bitcoin, bringing those together and, and kind of having a, a vision. And I think this is something, yeah. we, we, I mean, it's, it's really hard because, you know, we're in this sort of you know, political spectrum. It's election year. There's sort of the the day to day um, kind of media buzz of, of of politics with a capital P. But actually, what what is New Zealand? What are we doing? It, it's such a good question. And it's very topical. So we, at my next meeting after after I leave you, I'm going to sit with uh, MB, the GM for Energy and Resources, to talk about energy strategy amongst other things because the MB is developing New Zealand's energy strategy, right? And it's and it's an all-encompassing piece of work, wide consultation, trying to think about all the pieces of the puzzle. And they're not due to produce a first draft, I think, until end of next year. And we're grappling with these issues now. It's like, why don't we have a strategy now? We need it. and Because there's just this, as you said, the vision or the direction. Because if I've got an international investor wanting to come to New Zealand and, and do projects here, they'll say to me, you know, what's, what's the market going to look like over the next 30 years? And with all those things I just mentioned before, I have to say to them, I don't know, you know. And so, yeah, it, it's it's hard to get that right in election cycles, you know, long-term planning, 
for the energy market versus three-year election cycles, it's it's hard to get that right. It, yeah. it's, it's challenging. And, and I think that's where the, the narrative comes in and it, it is challenging and that's one of the, I guess, I, I feel one of my responsibilities with this show is to tell these stories and, you know, really explore what the opportunities could be. I mean, you talk about Northland, um, you, you know, there's, there's some real opportunity to build the, you know, build these assets out there to have, um, you know, drop containers in, you know, Bitcoin equipment. Yep. That's a national resource, you know, and it's going to become extremely difficult to get your hands on that. Um, yep. You know, right now, I mean, we were talking earlier, I mean, you, you can pick this gear up. It's it's bargain bargain bin stuff yeah. at the moment, um, but it won't stay that way for long. And there will be a rush. There's only a couple of companies manufacturing ASIC miners. Um, there's only a couple of companies making the chips. Um, they are a national asset, and yep. being able to get them into the country, situate them, have a vision for what that looks like. Um, New Zealand really could become a global leader. And as a small country, there is this kind of glimmer of hope that we could actually pivot really quickly. Mm. Yep. Um, it's not uh, yeah. You know, I just spoke about the NZ Battery Project. What that is all about is storing energy so um, we can still, our generation will still meet our load and as we move towards almost 100% renewables. And the, the challenge there is at the moment we've got kind of 60% hydro and hydro has long-term uh, variability, you know, over seasonal and annual cycles. Wind and solar have short-term variability, but they're quite predictable annually. But as we get up to, you know, 98, 99% renewables, there's going to be more of the variables like wind and solar are going to, you know, make up maybe 20, 30%. So it's going to be really important to be able to store energy or have flexible demand, right? And so if you, like you said, if you had lots and lots of Bitcoin all around the country, if if we did end up with... um, a cold day with no wind, no sun, you know, no solar generation, loads through the roof. You pay the Bitcoiners to to turn down. That that demand response is really important, and um, that that's a, like a big opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, and and sort of learning about how you know New Zealand effectively, because we are a smaller country. I mean, you know, it, the, anywhere in the country that there's issues, um, I guess, subject to the the transmission infrastructure. I mean, the, the whole country can be quite dynamically responsive to that, yep. um, which is a really unique opportunity. I, mean, I don't know if there's many other places like that where it's... I, sing- it, yeah. yeah, it's an important part of every grid, but yeah, New Zealand, in some ways, it's more important. We're such a long, stringy network. Most other countries are interconnected with someone else. If you look at Europe, yeah, every country, you know, they rely on being able to have backup from other countries because they're part of a, an international grid. We, you know, we're islanded here. If we don't solve it ourselves, you know, you can't connect to anyone else. So, so it's even more important that we get this stuff right. Yeah, um, I, I think. Yeah, coming back though, I mean, it sounds like you've you've done a lot of re- your own research on this, um, and and you've sort of explored the opportunity. You see, you see the the vision for it. How have you how have you come to be able to communicate that? Like, have you developed a, I guess, a way of overcoming people's maybe preconception or misconceptions of Bitcoin? like it, it, my, One of my favorite sayings is, um, I, I probably haven't got this right, but the people who believe something is impossible should not stand in the way of the people doing it or something. Yeah, yeah. So I think the best, like I, I can't even explain Bitcoin to my family at home over dinner. We have really interesting conversations, three teenage children, my wife, and when I start to explain Bitcoin and how it works, you know it's hard and and, um so 
I think the best thing I can do is help, you know, some of my clients and, and put the pieces together. You know, I've been around long enough that we've got some really good connections. And if I can help enable a project just to, you know, that's the best way. I mean, I, I've always been involved in new tech. I really like new technology. In Australia, I was on the advisory panel for ARENA for seven years. So Australian Renewable Energy Agency, they've funded an amazing array of new tech coming to market. They've spent over two billion in capital grants, right, to enable, and they've done they've done mainstream stuff like they've brought down the cost of large scale solar and batteries really rapidly by facilitating um, enabling projects and and doing that. The same with hydrogen now, but they've funded a whole lot of novel stuff coming to market to try and get it off the ground. Yeah, and and it's been so cool. And solar thermal is one that I'm really excited about. You know, mirrors and towers, and so that's that's happening. Um, New Zealand, we just don't have that same. I guess the same depth of funding to to demonstrate these technologies. We do it to a smaller scale. We've got um, Green Investment Fund, you know, got some good runs on the board and now got more funding to do that. But Australia's done it amazingly well. So um, it's the same with some of those technologies that I've seen go through in Australia. The best way to to demonstrate to people or, or let people learn is just to build something. They can see that it works, touch it if they need to, you know. So I, I think the same here, if we can... And there's already some really cool installations working, as you know, with Bitcoin. But if we can have a few projects that show how the Bitcoin can enable renewables and and have a better, um, you know, business model for all participants, especially with the heat recovery part, I'm I'm really excited about that. And so we've got a few initiatives underway at the moment. Um, yeah. Hopefully, be able to come back and talk about soon about. You know how we can how we can do that. Yeah, no, the heat recovery. I mean, we we talk about my heater in the corner here. Um, but the other thing that really interests me is the uh, opportunity for iwi and and mana whenua to um, basically become part you know participants in this story. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, I mean, you're looking at geothermal. Um, you look at uh, up north uh, the, the wind uh, opportunities, and and actually involving the community. And, and educating people about what the what the opportunities are here for, um, you know, for the Bitcoin side, because yep. you know there's there's the the container can go in and the Bitcoin mining can happen, but also at a community level, if you look at what uh, decentralized money looks like, yeah, um, especially with the challenges, you know, you've got inflation, you've got all of these kind of um, political global uh, issues that are that are happening, and kind of the the value proposition, like why are we mining Bitcoin? It's because it's extremely valuable, sound money, yep. and actually being able to bring that to communities and to the provinces of New Zealand, I think there's something really beautiful and unifying about that. Yeah, um, especially you know, even where I'm from, you know, Central Hawkes Bay, um, you know, Wellington seems very far away. Um, you know, you're you're in Kitty Kitty, Wellington is, is even further away, and so having that kind of regional power and, and I mean there has been a trend over time towards centralization but actually bringing it back to the, the regions and saying hey you know th- there's this opportunity and you can be anywhere and you can be part of it and the jobs and everything that emerge from that yeah I think I think it's really important it's I think it's longer term and, and my angle on it is so I've got some international renewables clients they're you know working in selected countries like Brazil India Italy New Zealand Indonesia like you know what I'm trying to work through with them is how can a Bitcoin-based business actually improve what they do globally? You know, if you, you know, so reducing their exposure to currency, fiat currencies, you know, international, you know, how can how can doing some Bitcoin in each of those countries actually um, improve their business? So that 
that's something that's going to take a bit longer to work through. That you know, these big corporates that are set up um, in a different way. But I, it's it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, if they're if they've got a project that's supplying Bitcoin, why not get paid in Bitcoin? Share that with the community in Bitcoin. You know, use that internationally in their supply chains in Bitcoin, and you know. Yeah, it's pretty fresh in my mind to trying to think through. Well, how can I sell it to them? Is something that they should even bother looking at. So that's where I'm at is trying to um, each of my clients just you know open their mind to these possibilities. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's challenging. Just last night, I was having a conversation with a guy who who owns a few uh, uh, restaurants in Wellington, and. I was trying, you know, explaining Bitcoin and, and he didn't really get it until I actually pulled out my phone and I showed him how it could work. Yeah. And I asked him, you know, what, what what are your fees like? What are your visa pay wave fees like for your business? And a lot of it's passed on to the customer, but there's also um, a lot of it that they have to absorb. And, you know, I saw his eyes light up when he saw that that transaction right. happened. Yeah. And again, the, the glimmer of hope I have, I think New Zealand is... You know, as you know, I lived overseas for many years and coming back, I, I sort of feel like, man, we're, we're trying to find ourselves. We've had the cyclones, we've had uh, mm. political down, uh, you know, economic downturn. There's a, I think a, we're sort of looking around, moping around, looking for the next thing. And as a smaller, a smaller country, there is this, this huge opportunity. And we, I, I just uh, the other day did an interview with a, a Kiwi guy who's working on um, Bitcoin, um, you know, Bitcoin software. You know, there's this kind of loose network of people who are just kind of on, you know, we're loosely connected at the moment, but extremely passionate about the opportunity here. And if I could see the empowerment of New Zealanders, um, you know, whether it's regions, the cities, manufacturing, whatever, agriculture, I don't know. I think it's just like a bright future and I I want to get behind that, Yeah. you know. Um, I think it's finding that button that, you know, like with your guy, the restaurant, all different parts of society and business what do they care about you know what what's that thing in with in the bitcoin story that they would latch on to and, and it's different for everyone um but yeah it's it's exciting i'm i'm excited as well genuinely think it it's it's very positive right optimistic yeah. for the future and in, in some way i've always been a bit of an optimist but <laughs> you know if nine out of ten people i talk to laugh and don't have a clue about this whole space that i think is is so exciting then it actually encourages me to go, okay, well, here's something new that people aren't, or not, not many people are talking about or doing. So it's an opportunity to try and, try and create something new. Yeah. Well, hey, look, uh, Blair, I really appreciate uh, your insight and, and and sharing your thoughts on this and, and making time to come into the studio. Um, if people want to reach out or, f- or follow um, some, some of your work or get in touch, what's the best way for them to, to, get, to contact you or to follow yeah, along? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I've spent a long time building up that um, decent profile there and it's enabled me to actually reach out to a lot of people I use it as a business tool you know if I want to connect with someone so that's a good way very obvious there I'm a bit sad for a long time there was another Blair Walter in New Zealand that came up top of the search results he was a famous winemaker or he is a famous winemaker in Canterbury and I think we're neck and neck I think I, I'm almost trying so my lifetime goal is to come up as the first LinkedIn search above that guy yeah. <laughs> you know it's not a very common name but um, yeah yeah. so yeah LinkedIn's a, a good way to find me okay cool I'll throw that um, in the show notes but hey Blair I really appreciate you coming in and uh, yeah um, hope, hope we can catch up again soon thanks Cody thank you thank you for listening I do hope you enjoyed the show I am Cody Allingham and that was the transformation of value if you'd like to get in touch please send me an email at hello at the transformation of value.com and I will get back to you <laughs>